0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing (laughs) co-host,
1: Ellen McGirt. Alan, Alan, it's so good to be with you. And it's the second to last
0: episode of the season, Ellen. I can't believe it. We made it through the year.
1: I know we did. I wasn't sure at some points that we were going to make it through, but it has gone by so fast.
0: It's so much fun to be able to have this opportunity to talk to the people who are leading the most successful companies in the world about uh, what they're seeing, what they're doing, where they're going, and today's episode was a great example of that. We talked to a CEO who may not be a household name. His name is, by the way, Tiger Tiyagarajan. He is CEO of Genpact. Genpact isn't probably top of mind for uh, for most people, but it's a professional services company that spun out of GE quite a long time ago and has become one of the world's leaders in in helping companies. Uh, go through digital transformation.
1: And he's a fascinating guy. He's been the CEO of Gempack since 2011, I believe. And he's done a lot during this time, but I'm gonna ask him about what the company did during COVID because if there was ever a use case for caring about your employees, relentlessly caring about your customers and using technology to transform things. It's the kinds of work they were able to do, making sure, for example, the vaccine was safe or that people had enough ventilators when they needed them.
0: You do that, Ellen. And I'm going to ask him about uh, artificial intelligence, AI, because over the course of the last five or six years, he's really been one of the people that I turn to to get some guidance on how the great promise of these new technologies, how it's really being applied and where it's really being applied in business and where it's falling short.
1: So it's good to have friends who are in the know and we're gonna hear a more about his leadership journey and philosophy. He started out as a sales manager in Mumbai, India to become a CEO of a publicly traded company.
0: Yeah, good guy, great leader, great story. Here's our conversation with Tiger, Tiger Rajan.
1: Tiger, it is so good to be back with you again. I think we have to start with the most basic question here is what does Genpack do? Because when I really look at it on paper, it looks like you're everything to everyone everywhere. And that can't possibly be true.
2: First of all, thank you, Ellen and Alan for inviting me into this conversation. Um, and what an introduction. I'm going to bottle that up and keep it with me. <laughs> so what do we do? It's actually um, a great question to ask because I would have answered the question very differently 10 plus years back versus today. So the best way to describe what we do is we partner with global 1,000 companies, enterprises, across six industry verticals, um, headquartered in typically developed economies of the world, and help them undertake change and transformation journeys uh, using new technologies, data, analytics, um, and basically drive better outcomes for them, help them compete better in the marketplace, And anything that allows us to be able to do that with them and for them is what we do. You have,
0: over the last five, six, seven years, you have been uh, sort of my tutor and my mentor on all things AI and how it's uh, transforming business. And I wonder if you could give us an update. I mean, we know the potential for these technologies to transform business is huge, um, but the reality doesn't always keep up with the potential. And you get to see this play out across so many different companies and industries. Where does it stand right now? Where is AI being used effectively? Where are you seeing really uh, revolutionary changes in business as a result of it?
2: So Alan, I'm glad you called me a tutor on AI because I think of myself as a student on AI. Enterprises and leaders and we are still discovering the best and most effective way to leverage AI and machine learning. And a couple of things that people have learned is, you know, you have to start with what is the outcome you're trying to deliver? That starts with making a few choices. You can't AI everything. So how do you make those choices? Go to outcomes. Those outcomes could be customer outcomes, could be outcomes for your shareholders, could be outcomes for the community. You can pick your right stakeholder group, but big outcomes and then say, this is one of the technologies I'm gonna leverage to deliver that outcome. Um, Otherwise, it becomes a hammer searching for a nail. The other learning that people have had is, you can have a great technology that actually is able to produce great models using AI machine learning, but those models are pretty worthless unless the underlying data is good and clean and uncorrupt and so on, so it goes back to data. And the other one is, great, you built a model, but if the people actually do not believe in the model, do not want to use the model, bypass the model, then you know your model is not worth it anymore because the AI has to constantly learn and only when people use it, they can learn. So lots of things to unpack there, but AI is still in its early days of infancy, but I think it's pretty clear what works and what doesn't work.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Both the fact that it can't be a technology-first approach, that you have to focus on outcomes, um you can't let it be a hammer that pounds down every nail and the ch- it has to be people first so with all of that as a background where are you seeing in these early days the most transformative applications of ai
2: the most important aspect that an ai delivers is prediction and you know humans uh, and the brains that all of us have and the minds that we have are constantly predicting outcomes and therefore the decisions that we have to take. Uh, What an AI does is understand patterns and help me, as the person who's trying to take a decision, predict and gives me the prediction for me to finally act. A great example of that is uh, a whole set of insurance applications are coming in, and uh, the enterprise, the insurance company, wants to decide which application to attack first to take a decision. Now, first in, first out, is the typical way humans behave. Uh, the noisiest uh, person gets acted upon first is the other way you can behave. So a broker who's noisy gets attention first. Uh, but the best way for an enterprise to behave is, which is the customer that is gonna be my long-term relationship, that is coming through a channel that a broker that I really like, that is a good risk to take, that is good pricing and profitability, that I can delight the customer with.
0: Great example, can you give us one or two others?
2: Let's take uh, a private label credit card of a bank. You know, we take the data from the private label credit card of all the people uh, who have bought using that credit card of that retailer, and we go back and say, look, there are some people who are using the card a lot, there are others who are not. Can we figure out who they are and why? To do that, I need to go to the retailer and get information about the actual buying patterns of those customers, both on the card and outside the card. And lo and behold, you find a whole set of customers who are big users of the card and every time they shop in that retail outlet, they use the card. But there's a whole set of other people who are actually big shoppers, both online and at the store, but they don't use that particular card. They use other cards or they write a check. And you try to understand what is it that is making people not use the card because the whole idea is to make people use the card. So we worked with that financial service institution and the retailer to make it a win-win-win for everyone by identifying those customers who are behaving in a certain way and predicting the next time they come to shop. What is the nudge you give them to make them use the card?
0: Ellen, I'm just gonna ask one more question about this and then we'll leave we can leave AI behind. But I'm so fascinated and I, I think there's so much ahead for us on this. One of the things when we first started talking about this five or six years ago, one of the great fears was AI was going to replace humans. But the examples you're giving, these are really not replacement functions. They are enhancing humans.
2: Is that what you're finding? The narrative out there had always been AI will destroy jobs. So, what are we going to do? And, you know, many people, including me, had always said that AI will actually create jobs. Obviously they'll require some new skills, but they will create jobs. All technologies have always in the end created jobs. We've always thought about AI as not artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence. The intelligence is still the human intelligence. It's augmentation of that. We've seen that play out. I mean, who would have thought that as digital transformation takes hold, unemployment is still not as high as typically one would find in a recession. So. I believe that the value creation opportunity that the world has in all aspects, including things like you know, the big topic of climate change, the big topic of social equality, AI can play a very big role and those are all enhancing, value creating and job enriching and more jobs needed.
1: I wanna get in also to the work that you all did as a company during the pandemic, was your adverse event reporting work that you did with the UK government. I mean, to me, that that kind of work was extraordinary. And I think if more people understood the true nuances around AI, it would have changed the conversation about trust in the vaccine in some interesting way. Could you tell that
2: story, please? That's one of the most gratifying and satisfying stories in actually my entire career. This is when um, any pharmaceutical company launches a new drug or actually has a drug that it sells. Uh, it constantly is listening for any adverse events that any user of that medicine uh, reports. And obviously these days you can report in 10,000 different ways. You can tweet, you can uh, email, you can send a fax. Believe it or not, people send faxes still. Um, or telephone a 1-800 number and basically say, I have a problem this morning because I had this tablet for a simple headache and I don't feel good this morning. That is an adverse event. And regulatorily, every pharmaceutical company has to put that together and report it after analyzing whether it's a false positive or it's really a problem. Well, the reality is that it's possible that the uh, bottle in which the medicine is sold has a label which says, you're not supposed to have a glass of wine when you have the tablet. It actually says that, and you know, people like me don't read labels, we just pop the tablet and then we had a glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) The next day morning, I send in an adverse event complaint. In reality, there's nothing wrong with the medicine, it's all fine, but once in a while, the complaint is a real complaint, and that becomes a true adverse event. Now. Here's the interesting thing, the speed with which you can pick out the needle in the haystack can make a difference to lives. You know, the, the stories of the old medicines that had a problem, if people had detected it one week earlier, lives could have been saved. So you want to get the medicine out fast. At the same time, you want to catch every adverse event and make sure it's okay.
1: And that's what you were able to do with the UK government during, during the
2: COVID trials. That's right. And, and basically we took all the data and passed it through compared it to the medical dictionaries and language and so on and said, here is the one needle in the haystack, look at this one first. And that makes a huge difference.
1: Oh, That is such a good story. And I I wanna continue on the subject of COVID because it was such a transformational and painful moment for everyone. But something extraordinary happened November of 2020 where all of the work that you've been doing to build a culture that's maniacally focused on the customer is suddenly a new purpose has come into view. Could you tell us about that time?
2: Yeah, again, uh, Ellen, your memory is amazing (laughs) um, of our story. So for many years, uh, we hadn't defined uh, a very explicit purpose for the company. In retrospect, I now realize that we had been living our purpose without ever defining it, Mm. which which is fascinating. What happened during the pandemic, there was a realization that as we became much more virtual and continued to become global and hiring new people, we had to anchor people on a stated purpose. So we undertook the journey of identifying our purpose. Um, we went to our employees, our customers, our stakeholders. Uh, we did a bunch of workshops, etc., and quickly narrowed down to the purpose that we ultimately uh, honed in on. And what we realized was, we had been living the purpose all along. We just hadn't put it on a piece of paper. The relentless pursuit of a world that works better for people, and you know whether it is the adverse event report story that you described, or it's the way our employees uh, reacted to COVID, uh, making sure that they looked after each other uh, and prevented you know really bad things happening to everyone around them. At the same time, didn't want to drop the ball. Even for uh, for an hour on some of the things that to do to clients, because the realization that actually the work we do keeps the world going round. So you know that purpose is now rallying our people across the globe, and uh, we really are thrilled with the fact that we can explicitly now describe it and anchor ourselves around it.
0: Fascinating. So your purpose revealed itself.
2: That's right. Great phrase.
0: I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S., and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for your support.
1: Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, Joe, this new wave of business technology, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, the ability to make intelligence out of data— is creating huge opportunities for companies. But a lot of the CEOs I talk to feel daunted by it. It's like, where do they get the imagination to rethink their entire corporation? How do they deal with that? The opportunities are immense, particularly when you look at not just any one of these technologies individually, but the convergence of all of them collectively, creating the opportunity to truly transform business models. And I know it can seem daunting, but the reality is taking a first step in actually produces huge benefit because what we're finding is that many of the cutting edge applications are not coming out of the corporate headquarters. They're coming out of putting the technology in the hands of our people on the front lines. They find new and innovative uses. We then funnel them back up and leverage them across the entire client base. Yeah, it really gets to the importance of a culture of innovation at the company. It is essential that our people feel empowered to take the latest and greatest and to find new and innovative ways to use it for productive purposes. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. So I want to go back to Ellen's very first question, which is what is GenPact? Because old folks like me know that GenPact grew out of General Electric and you were a a product of General Electric. And, and, And that really leads me to Two questions that I think you're well positioned to talk about. One is, what did you learn from Jack Welch and his leadership that is still valuable to you today? And the second question is, what's changed? What are the things about Jack that probably wouldn't work today the way they did 20 years ago?
2: So, I don't, I'm biased. <laughs> I grew up in the GE that, you know, in the early 90s and late 90s was all. Uh, driven by Jack as the CEO, and he was a bigger-than-life uh, CEO, as, as we all know. So, I learned a lot. So, I'll start with uh, you know, the candor and transparency uh, within the company, across the company, in every corner of the company. We were a little business, meaning fourth decimal point of revenue and market cap and so on for GE. And I was this little person in that little corner of GE and he knew what we were doing. Um, He talked about some of the things that we were doing just based on a quick conversation in a car ride from the airport to the office on his one trip to GE uh, to India for four days where I hosted him for originally planned 90 minutes, turned out to be five hours because he canceled a whole bunch of meetings because he fell in love with what we were doing. And that conversation in that car, he then goes back and relates some of the things we're doing, gets other people to look at us, et cetera. So there is something about the way he communicated across the length and breadth of half a million people across businesses that had no right to talk to each other. Royalty payments for NBC, Universal, uh, and credit cards and aircraft engines. What connection? Well, Jack Welch and leadership connection. So that's one learning I had. The other one was I mean, I am a big believer that I, I, I drive myself every day with one word, which is curiosity. I live my life uh, anchored on curiosity. I actually saw that live in action for the seven or eight years that I worked under his CEO ship every day. I mean, he would walk into the room and all he would have is question after question after question. Uh, I believe living a life asking questions. It's such a great way to live life and constantly learning from others. And Tiger, for
0: for those of us who were journalists, I mean, that was what we loved about Jack as well, because he was the same way externally as he was internally. But, you know, there've been a couple of books. There's this sort of reappraisal going on now that focuses on things like Jack was the consummate manager of quarterly earnings you know give the market exactly what you told them they were going to get and even play some games some of which didn't look so good in retrospect to get there and second there was all there were these internal management processes like rank and yank we're going to file, fire the bottom 10% or 20% every year that in today's world don't look like a particularly effective way to manage so w- was he just a product of
2: his time or do you think the reappraisals are wrong or how do you view all that so I think the first statement I would make is uh, we must reappraise because reappraisal is asking questions. I love the fact that I worked in that, in that era and I learned so much from Jack. But I do reappraise saying, huh, I don't think this is going to work here because the world has changed. Um, the, the ranking of people, uh, I was a big believer in. I used it. It worked. Won't work now. It doesn't work with my son. (laughs) He's 28 and it doesn't work with him. So so social norms change, uh, cultural norms change, expectations change, technology changes, the speed at which information flows have dramatically changed. Um, Hierarchies is not the way actually enterprises work at all. The trick I think about leadership is making sure that while I admire and respect everything I learned from Jack, I have absolutely no qualms and desire to hold on to everything that I learned at that time. If I know that actually it's not gonna work and I have to change and I have to adapt. And I would say, I probably learned that from Jack as well because he used to say, if you can't get to number one, number two, move on, get to the next business. You know, you can take the good and then leave the bad behind is the way I would approach it.
1: It sounds like an ability to manage a constantly changing world is going to be essential for the next generation of leaders coming up. What are you looking for in the next generation of of leaders and how can they signal that they are prepared to lead?
2: So, Ellen, one of the things that I have always been a believer in and it's probably turning out to be more true than I had expected and probably faster than I'd expected is what people know and the knowledge and experience they have and the skills they have are less important in in uh, in what i look for and what my team looks for in people who are going to be successful in the long run because what they know and their experiences are probably not going to be relevant x months years quarters you know later so the question that we explore is are you constantly learning Uh, Do you believe actually shedding old beliefs and bringing new beliefs in is a good thing to do? Or are you dogmatic in your beliefs? You're never going to change. Do you know how to learn? Uh, That starts with being humble. Do you reveal your ignorance? If you don't reveal your ignorance, I don't know how anyone can teach you because they don't know what to teach you because they they don't know what you don't know. Um, Do you learn from people who are much younger, much lesser experience, because they know that topic more than you ever would have imagined. And do you actually go to them and sit down and say, teach me? Um, Yes, I have 30 years experience, but you know this topic more than I do. So, so finding such people and are passionate about this, not passive, they seek learning, they are driven, they wear it on their sleeves because when people wear things on their sleeves, they get a followership. You want people who are not only behave like this but they behave like this visibly because you want thousand people to follow them and say I want to be like you. So then you have a a followership on the topic of I want to learn, I want to excel, I want to relearn, I want to constantly challenge my own beliefs and I want to surround myself with people who are diverse because if I surround myself with people who are not diverse then the chances are that their beliefs are my beliefs. So where is the challenge?
0: I'm going to ask you a, a big question here, Tiger. Ask, ask you about the world, because GenPact was a creature of the globalization of the 20th century, or the whole move towards business process outsourcing, say, hey, we can, you know, there are all these really smart people in India that we can deploy to do this for us. Let's let it happen over there. Um, uh, we're in a very different era right now. Uh, geopolitics is different, supply chain problems have just made people think very differently about this. And there's a whole process of friendshoring, reshoring, people thinking about bringing everything back home as opposed to leaving it all over the world. What's your assessment of that? Where where are we in the state of,
2: of globalized business? It's a great question, Alan. And I would say, unfortunately, the answer is going to be heavily nuanced. So let's take a few things. So if you look at a manufacturing company that is uh, predominantly dependent on China for its supply chain, uh, pretty much end-to-end supply chain, then I would argue, irrespective of cost, there is a problem. uh, Because there is a resilience problem that is obvious. Uh, Irrespective of trade wars, et cetera, there is a resilience problem that should be sorted. Does that sorting out of the resilience problem mean diversify? The answer is yes. Does that diversification mean bring it near shore? I don't know. Um, After all, Apple decided that it needed to diversify manufacturing of the iPhone 14 out of China. In my mind, I was expecting it to happen at some point in time. The speed with which it happened is I think as a reflection of the world we are in and now we have manufacturing that is happening for the iPhone 14 in India as well. Um, now, that's still globalization, but that's now, so part of the answer to the question is, I think concentration of anything um, and and swinging the pendulum too much to an extreme on anything is a problem. Um, having a balance that is distributed on lots of topics is the way I think the world is gonna go. The world of digital and technology and information flow allows that to happen, because uh, there are gonna be some things that will be needed it's cycle times that no supply chain can deliver. Those are best done really close to you. There are some things that can be done from far away, in which case don't distribute it to one place, distribute it to an ecosystem that has the ability to uh, create resilience. We've had situations in the last 12 to 18 months where a number of our new clients have come to us and said, I need you and I need you with your global footprint because my footprint is too concentrated in location X or location Y. So I need to globalize more because I realize that because I'm not global, I've not been able to leverage that resiliency that some of my competitors have.
0: So what has that meant to GenPAC's geographical footprint? I mean, you started out very much uh, uh, with an Indian workforce. What does it look like today? So
2: 1997, the first set of people we hired and trained and deployed were in India. Um, 2005, Jan 1, when we spun off from GE, we had four countries we delivered services from, India, China, uh, Budapest, and Hungary, and Mexico. Today, we have 34 countries we deliver services from. Um, India is still the biggest, but it's only 70,000 people, only 70,000 people, out of 120,000 people. 50,000 people are in 33 other countries. And if I pick a country that I just came back from, Poland, as an example. We have four cities we deliver services from. We have 3,000 people in Poland. They're doing some amazing work in supply chain for Europe, for a couple of very large consumer goods and manufacturing companies. They forecast demand, they line up supply, they build resiliency in that supply, they then uh, orchestrate transportation, they try and reduce. Cost of transportation, but these days they're also trying to reduce carbon footprint in transportation because the client they serve is very focused on ESG. So that ecosystem is all Poland. And therefore, um, you know, when you think about uh, resiliency, we have an India footprint for the US for them, and then we have a Polish footprint for Europe. However, those teams are cross trained, and our ability to move talent back and forth, our ability to move work back and forth. As long as we have information flow and connectivity, is where the is where the world is.
0: So, from where you sit, the world of business is as globalized as ever, or more than ever.
2: It has, but as I said, it has nuances. So, it's very, very important to be in a constantly listening mode. Uh, and there are times when it's very important to have a workforce that's really close to the client, and actually encourage them to do that. So, we now have close to 9,000 people in the U.S. in five operating centers in the U.S. And 10 years back, that was not even a 1,000. Uh, so it's grown 10 times. Uh, and the work they do is sensitive, is regulated, is uh, time sensitive, is customer sensitive, uh, needs reaction time and response time. And is also culturally sensitive in the sense that you need to understand the local culture deeply. And therefore, it's best to be done out of Florida or out of Texas or out of Illinois or Pennsylvania Four of our big centers in the U.S.
1: It sounds like you literally live inside a, a fully diverse ecosystem of inputs and ideas and business pressures and opportunities that's fully global. How do you take these inputs and these insights and these information and and begin to chart a path forward? I don't know if you use AI, but I wouldn't be surprised if you
2: did. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Ellen, in my in my free time, I listen I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a big fan of podcasts, by the way, because I walk a lot and run a lot, so I listen to podcasts. Leadership Next is no doubt at the top of the it's list. It's already on my list. So. <laughs> um, however, most of the podcasts Alan and I listen to are not business podcasts. They're podcasts about the way the mind works and the way you know evolution has happened, et cetera. And one of the things that is obvious is that um, you know it, it, it's important for our kind of an ecosystem to be constantly listening. What does listening mean for us? It means that we need to have our tentacles out in the world. We need to be with our clients. Fortunately, our clients are very diverse, as you said. They're very global, they're very distributed, and they have all kinds of challenges. So if we have the ability as an organization to pick up those signals in advance uh, and to connect multiple signals that we pick up from Australia, from Japan, from Germany, From Poland, four countries I just visited in the last eight weeks. And then be able to come together and say, what does this all mean? What does this mean when people in, when enterprises in Japan are really beginning to talk about China risk? I found that to be a fascinating conversation just five weeks back. I've been to Japan twice a year for the last 25 years, other than the two years in between for the pandemic. I've never had a China risk conversation to the extent I had this time. Hmm. Um, and it tells me that people are thinking about a world where maybe it is required to think that way. And and therefore, it's our job to figure out what does that mean for the future. I'm not a big believer in forecasting five years forward. Um, I've never was. Uh, I've become less of a believer these days. I'm a big believer in having continuous forecast and updation through continuous listening and as an organization, we have the luxury of being able to do that in a, such a widespread way and then have the agility to change rapidly as you form patterns of, I think this is going to happen. We we recognized supply chain as a problem in 2017, well before the pandemic. And thank God we did that because we doubled down and we did an acquisition and we you know built out capabilities. And then boom, the pandemic happened and it took on a whole life of its own. So today, supply chain is one of our fastest-growing uh, services because of that.
1: What another way of saying what you just said is don't fall in love with forecasts, begin to get interested in really good likely scenarios, and that gives you a chance to fall more in love with the problem that you're trying to solve and the solution that you think you have.
2: Extremely well put, so scenarios is a word that has really raised its head a lot in the last six, nine, twelve months, and forecast is important, but reforecast in very fast cycles. If you used to do once a quarter, do once a week.
0: Tiger, this has, as always, been a fascinating conversation. Uh, every conversation with you is. Thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to the two of us. We've we've covered not just how AI is changing business, but but how uh, listening and learning and scenario planning is all so critical to leading a business today. Great to be with you.
2: Alan, Alan, thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation.
0: Leadership Next is edited by Alexis Hot, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell, executive producer, Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.